It's Friday, Friday, another week in the Word completed, another good week uh, we have reached the end of. My name is Tim Harris. It's 10 o'clock. It's time for Tim with Tim. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 20, verses 13 to 38. Uh, gosh, I love this so much. You know, one of the things I noticed today, uh, well, I, I love this, you know, farewell speech that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders. I really, really do. Uh, there's just no way not to love it. Uh, but but one of the things I noticed, and again, maybe it's obvious to you all, um, but this is only the third speech of Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, in other words, man, to be the kind of the star of the show, he hasn't said much. I, f- I find that kind of interesting. You, um, I guess we feel like because of the letters of Paul that we've heard Paul's voice a lot. But in the book of Acts, this is really only the third speech. Uh, he gives one speech uh, on his first missionary journey. I think that was in Pisidian, Antioch. And uh, in that instance, if I recall, he's speaking to Jews. On the second missionary journey, we get a, a long speech of Paul, and that one is at the, uh, uh, the Areopagus, and that is to Gentiles. I think that's really interesting. And here, uh, th- this final speech, third missionary journey, He's speaking to the Ephesian elders. He's talking to Christians. Um, I just think that's really interesting. Uh, you know, one major speech with each missionary journey, uh, one to Jews, one to Gentiles, and then this one to Christians in general. I just, I, I find that interesting. Uh, verse 13 is where we'll start. I'll just jump in. Uh, when it says we now, remember that's Luke as part of the company, but we're talking about that, the, the, those offering delegates. I think I explained that yesterday. It's a lo- rather large group of men now with a rather large sum of money, which is going to be coins. So it's, it's heavy. Uh, they're traveling with some cargo, with some risk involved. Uh, and so uh, these uh, little, you know, jaunts and adventures they have from place to place, uh, it's often difficult travel and often more time than, than it seems. Uh, Luke kind of gives you a, a rather, you know, place-by-place place travel log there of how they end up at Miletus. Verse 16, Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus because he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He's hurrying to get to Jerusalem. There's this urgency now with Paul, which I'm also becoming to be kind of struck with. Um, it reminds me in the Gospels when Jesus, you know, must go to Jerusalem. You know, Paul just must go to Jerusalem. And uh, Monday morning, when we get to, you know, chapter 21, it's the same thing. He's just determined. He set his face toward Jerusalem like Christ. And everybody's going, no, 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 you can't go there. You know, you can't, it's not going to end well for you there. And um, it's just very reminiscent of Jesus's, you know, final push toward Jerusalem. We know ultimately Paul is pushing to Rome, but he really wants to get to Jerusalem for Passover. It's almost like Paul knows this is his last tour. You know, it's, it's like a farewell tour, uh, and I think it's interesting. It's like his bucket list. He's trying to do, you know, things one more time as he really becomes aware of the fact that he's finishing up something. He's putting a period to, you know, what God has called him to do. So when he landed in Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church asking to come and meet him. Um, People who read the book of Acts, you know, if they're reading carefully, often say, well, you know, if Paul's in a hurry, doesn't it make more sense for him just to go to Ephesus? Because in the time it takes 
you know, him to send a messenger to Ephesus, and then they're going to have to pack up and come to where he is. Paul could have already gone and went. He could have he could have already gone and come back. So if he's in a hurry, if you're trying to explain, he doesn't go to you know go to Ephesus because he's in a hurry. Well, he didn't save any time by not going and sending a messenger and waiting for them to come. So there must be some other explanation. I don't know it, but but I agree with the you know the basic logistics there. If you're in a big hurry, go. Unless Paul just knew that if I go, I'll get stuck there and I'll never get away. I have to, you know, I have to hug everybody, eat in everybody's house, and you know, preach, and I'll, I'll never get out of there. I just need to just let them come to me. I don't know, but again, it doesn't save a lot of time, is what I'm saying. Uh, the speech itself, I just think, is magnificent. Part of it is just as a pastor, uh, I just love it. I, I just love everything that Paul says here. Um, just sort of describing to the Ephesian elders the leadership of the church there. His example, and 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 also in reading this part of in reading it with you, I'm just sort of thinking, what's the point? You know, what is Paul really trying to say here? Um, he speaks of his own example, and I think his example is meant to give an example to them and an example to us. I think our problem is that we often think that we're something different than what Paul was. He was a preacher, you know, and we're whatever we are. Um, but you mustn't think that way. Remember, Paul was kind of not a preacher. He was because he's faithful and because the Bible records when he talks. But but he was a professional tent maker. If you ask Paul what he did, if you looked at his business card, he was a professional tent maker. He worked full time, preached on the side, you know, and I don't think he ever had that identity or thought of himself as something other than the, the other people, other than the fact that he is very, uh, very zealous very uh, willing to travel. A lot of that goes with being a tent maker. If you follow the travel logs seasonally and in every other way, Paul's movements seem to correspond with what a smart tent maker would do in order to be where the crowds are, in order to be where the Isthmian Corinthian games are. I mean, Paul's a tent maker. And so when he gives in his, his example here, I don't think he's describing something other than what you and I should be all the time. You know what I'm saying? So for example, he talks about consistency. The whole time I was with you, from the day I first set foot in your place to the day I left, you know, this is the way I was. I was just consistent, the same, all, all, all the time. He uses words like serving. He uses words like humility. He speaks several times of tears, which I think is really interesting, and words like in, endurance. Uh, we've seen this amazing transformation with Paul. He started out this very zealous and violent man, and now in this particular, you know, sermon to the elders, he comes across as this very uh, just gentle, compassionate shepherd, you know, who lives for others. Uh, and, and I love that. I think that transformation, of course, it's come by the Holy Spirit. But remember when Saul, Paul was first converted, Jesus said, I'm going to show him how he must suffer for my name. I think he said that to um, uh, uh Ananias, who was going to, you know, uh, go minister to Saul. Um, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I think suffering is part of what teaches us humility. Suffering is what softens our hearts, teaches us compassion. And I think in, in, in very many ways, Paul has learned uh, gentleness and compassion from suffering, just as Jesus said that he would. 
Uh, he says, that I, 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 I said anything you needed to hear. I, I said anything helpful to you, whether publicly or in your homes. Again, his proclamation, his teaching, he would say whatever was necessary, and he'd say it whether he was in public or he'd say it privately. He was the same person publicly or one-on-one, -on -one, you know, always the same. Without prejudice, whether it's Jews or Gentiles, he says. Again, is there anything in that that would be something different than the way you and I should try to live our lives? Uh, among other things, verse 22, he says, I'm captive to the Spirit. I'm captive now, bound by the Spirit. I'm a captive to the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I find that interesting. Most of us, we say we follow the Spirit. We say we're filled with the Spirit, but we seem to have a whole lot of options in our lives, you know? And, and you know, primarily the shocking thing is most of us seem to have the option most days to not do anything for Jesus at all to never open our mouths for the sake of the gospel. And I think that's interesting. Paul was as free as you and I are free, as full of the Spirit, I would say, as you and I are full of the Spirit because of Jesus. But somehow Paul, his options are narrowed because he is going to move and stay in step with the Spirit. You and I have this uh, amazing range of options which permit us to go very idle when it comes to serving the Lord. Um, I love that verse 24 so much. It's, it's, I, I wish it were my life verse. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others about the good news. My life is nothing, nothing if I'm not using it for finishing the work of the gospel. For Paul, the only thing of worth at all is the gospel. The only thing worthy is to be serving the Lord. So right now, if you were to measure your life, if you were to stop and, and recognize that the most worthy thing of all is to serve the Lord, literally to, to be sharing the gospel, to be sharing the good news with people. If that's the only thing worthy, then what exactly is your life worth right now? I, I mean, real question. If, if the only thing that makes life worth living is to be serving Jesus and serving the gospel, then what is your life worth right now if you measure it, it, it you know, to the degree to which you are serving the Lord and and sharing the gospel. And that's just convicting, but that's just Paul. And it explains so much of what follows you know, in, in, in the next chapters. Again, what's the point, Paul? What are you trying to say to them? I know that none of you to whom I preach the kingdom will ever see me again. And that gets them. It says later, and they're moved to tears when Paul says, I'm never going to see you again. How he knows that is amazing, but he recognizes this is final gospel goodbye, you know. Uh, and I am innocent of everyone's blood. That's interesting. I love the way he says, innocent of everyone's blood. And then in the very next verse, talks about the church purchased with the, the very blood of Jesus. Uh, you know, everyone's blood, you know, I'm innocent of their blood. Jesus's blood has purchased the church. All of that is, is amazing to me. Uh, Paul's just, it's using Ezekiel language, right? Remember the watchman on the wall who said that if he is faithful to, to warn, then he's innocent of the blood of people, whether they respond or don't respond. So the responsibility always falls upon the hearers. At the same time, there's sort of a transfer of responsibility here to the elders. Paul wants them to know, I'm, I'm not going to see you again. And uh, this church uh, that, that you and I both love, you are responsible for it now. All that, though, notice what he says in verse 28. The first thing he says is guard yourselves. As pastors, our goal, our, our job is to lead and feed, to, to shepherd the flock, right? To guard the flock. But notice the first thing he says is guard yourselves. I think it's sobering that he says, yeah, there are going to be some wolves coming to devour the flock that you're in charge of. And some of those wolves are going to come from, from your group, you know? 
which is terrifying. You know, some of you are going to be the wolves. Some of you are going to be the ones that uh, become a threat, the predators of the flock itself. And how do you do that? But by distorting the truth, by sacrificing the gospel, by compromising the message in any other way. Uh, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Uh, it is more blessed uh, to give than to receive. Uh, uh, gosh, I guess one of the most common ways that we distort the truth of Jesus is by distorting that right there. Paul shows that you live for others. You pour out your life for others. You live for Jesus. But man, I'm telling you, don't we live for ourselves? You know, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. But I think one of the most common distortions of that message in the church of today is we truly live as if it's more blessed to receive than to give because we are mostly in it for ourselves. Let's just be honest. When he finished speaking, he knelt, prayed with them. They all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye because their hearts were broken because he said he'd probably never see them again. And they escorted him down to the ship. Paul is moving toward Jerusalem. And so uh, uh, this is where we'll pick up on Monday morning. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 25, okay? Chapter 21, verses 1 to 25. I, I love this. Paul's going to show you what it means to live a life on mission. And uh, oh my goodness, uh, uh, I guess some of us would if we were willing to pay the price, but man, what Paul ends up paying is a price most of us consider way too costly. But in Paul's mind, my life isn't worth anything anyway, unless I'm finishing the work of the gospel. Whew. Man, I wish I could be like him. Uh, I love you guys so much. Have a good weekend. If I don't see you in church, Woodburn Baptist Church, 8, 9, 30, 11 on Sunday, I'll see you Monday morning, Lord Willington with Tim. I love you guys so much. I really do. Thank you for being in the word with me. Stay in it, and I'll see you Monday.